Welcome to Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness. My name is Maria Magdalena de la Cruzco Garcia. People call me Maggie. I am originally from Mexico. And I immigrated into the U.S. when I was 18 by accident, but there are no accidents. And I've been here since. How did you immigrate by accident? So I was recruited to play basketball for the Mexican national team in Mexico City. And the reason why is because I was so committed to finding a way out of the orphanage. I found basketball because soccer was everybody knew it. Everybody was playing it. And Basketball was something new that presented itself back then. And I just started to play and started to get really better at it to the point that I got recruited by them. And I went to Mexico City training and they absolutely wanted me to come and play for them. And I went back to the orphanage. About three months later, we hadn't received a call and we were wondering what was going to happen. And then my caregiver, who is a doctor, introduced American football to us, to me and the boys. And we started to play. And that day, one of my brothers threw a really long pass and I cut it up in the air. And when I caught the ball, it rotated my body and my shoulder hit the ground. Mm. I got up and it felt like somebody had punched my gut, but I could stand up very easily. So I went to my caregiver, who's a doctor, and he pulled my shoulders back and he said, You just broke your collarbone. Your dreams are over. And I put my fists like this and I was like, no, no. If this happened, that means something's better is going to happen. If not, this is something better. That's what I said to myself. And I refused to believe. Three days later, I got a call from the Mexican national team and they wanted me to play and I couldn't play. So it was probably like four or five, something like that months later. My parents, our caregivers, took a bus with all my 68 siblings from the orphanage. And they toured the United States to raise funds for the nonprofit. And we happened to stop at a picnic in West Virginia by invitation. It was a Catholic school. It was called St. Agnes. They had a basketball court outside. My brother saw it and I and ran to it as soon as we got there. We started to play. And there happened to be the coach of the University of Charleston and she saw me play and she went to my caregiver and asked him, I would love to have her play for me on a scholarship. And that's how I came here. And the thing is, if I would have listened to my caregiver and not played that day, I wouldn't be speaking to you today. Mm -hmm. And I assume, I mean, I saw you speaking at Nabo, so I assume there was no, it's not because of your height that you were good. (laughs) No, I'm five foot two. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you're short, so basketball's a surprise. Do you call your caregivers your parents? Yes. You grew up in an orphanage? Yes. Did you ever know your biological parents? They were my biological parents. Oh, explain that. And I'm so glad that you're asking this because I don't get to tell this story when I'm on stages. I call them caregivers because they cared for us. And I, we really never had a one-on-one. I don't know what it's like to have like parents. So they cared for us. They cared not only for us, but for everybody else. And there's eight of us biological kids. And we are 
so close together now because of what we went through. And what we went through is our caregivers were so afraid that if they paid too much attention to us, that the other kids would escape or cause more problems. I remember him having a secret conversation with my mother saying, don't pay attention to them because we're afraid that these kids are, because it happened. And that was my aha moment for that. And I knew that, that we just had to endure. And it was even worse for us because we went through a lot more abuse and suffering because it was easier for them to believe other kids and to us. And even if we didn't do anything in many, many, many cases, we were severely punished for something that we never did. And that was hard. And that's why the eight of us today were so close together because of what we went through. Yeah. Do you have a relationship with your parents at all or and are they still alive? My father passed in 2009. Yeah, he never recognized my success until a week before he died. He wrote me a letter. Mm. You came to the U.S. and you had nothing but a scholarship. Is that right? That's correct. And can you talk about what you've done since then? Your story of resilience was so amazing. And I really love the story about you driving the truck and the <laughs> the brick on your foot and stuff. So if you can just share how you got from that to here and what here looks like for anybody who doesn't know your story. So I ended up coming to the U.S. play basketball at the University of Charleston. And I graduated with a degree in interior design because I've taken architecture schooling in Mexico. I couldn't find a job because it was in West Virginia. There was, I think, one or two firms and I tried to get a job and I just couldn't. So I became homeless. I was sleeping out on my station wagon for a while and then a bunch of months. And then my engine blew up on one of those hills. And so I started carrying my bags in the mountains and in the streets. So I was homeless for like another two or three months. And then I was entered into a salsa contest by friends. And the reason why people knew this is because when I was in college, I was making this fresh pico de gallo de salsa. And I was sharing it with my classmates and they would tell my teachers and my teachers had me bring it to class. So it became very well known. Mm-hmm. And so I was entered into a salsa contest probably two or three weeks after I came out of being homeless. Somebody saw me on the street that worked at the university and they're like, what are you doing? So I entered that salsa contest and I won by unanimous vote. It was a contest for the state and there's like 15 people and they all brought their cooked salsas, but mine was fresh and it was something that wasn't really heard of. Mm-hmm. And so I won that contest and that was my aha moment. And I decided to make the pros and cons about starting a business because I've never, I only took one business class in college, business one-on-one and that's it. So I really took on to Google because I couldn't get help from anybody, even the small business administration because it was such a niche product. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started. I started with 800 bucks because somebody at the contest saw me and everybody was starting to ask, where do you sell this stuff? And I'm like, I don't sell it. I am just came out of homelessness. And so somebody gifted me 800 bucks to start this business. Mm-hmm. And I made the pros and cons and I made sure it would work. And it was, they were the best well spent $800 of my life. And I started making it by the gallon. I sold it by the pint and I sold it to friends for $5. And then it just kind of took off from there. It was really hard initially because I went into the capital market 
because they are at the contest and they saw the products competition. And then I was able to go into another, I think, two stores in, in local, like mom and pop. But I made a long list of stores to call from the smallest to the largest and a couple hundred supermarkets. And the first 90 stores that I called told me no. And it was so scary because I've never picked up the phone. And at that time, one of my best friends was telling me, what are you doing? You're not making any money. You should quit. Get a job. Get a real job. And I got a couple of setbacks like that as far as people telling me that I couldn't do something, that this was crazy. But what I did was I did totally the opposite, which I it was even more scary. So I turned that list upside down. And at the top now was the Whole Foods Market. Mm-hmm. And I remember being so scared and picking up the phone and saying, hey, my name is Maria Magdalena de la Cruz Garcia. I have an awesome people like you. So I think you guys would love it. And I hang up. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so glad they didn't answer. Well, I got a call back the next day at 6 p.m. And I was parked in the city center. And it was the main guy from the entire Atlantic of Whole Foods. And he says, this is Eric. We heard from you. When can you come? And I'm like, oh, my God. He just called me. So they met the next day at 9 a.m. And I was in West Virginia. They were in Maryland. So I went to the kitchen, made salsa, packed it up, drove. I barely made it to 9 a.m. They opened the doors. There was a huge distribution center, the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. All these trucks, you know. And I walked into this huge room with all men with a U table. And I have this salsa boxes and chips on top with my little heels and my dress. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and I walk in and I put the product on the table. They open it up and they start eating. And at one point, Eric stands up and he says, oh my gosh, we love your products. When can we have them? And I said, well, how much do you need? And he says, well, the first order is going to be 10,000 pounds of salsa. And I'm like freaking out because back then I was making 250 pounds of salsa for a week to sell to friends. That year, because of that, I made it happen. It went from making $12,000 a year to $1.9 million a year. And that was just Whole Foods. And what happened from then on is that all these other supermarkets that said no, now they saw that I was there and all the customers were telling them you should get her products. Mm-hmm. Started calling me now. And so that's really how it just took off and grew tremendously. What is it about you that made you say yes, even though others were saying no to you? I believed in the product. Because I had proof. I've coached a lot of people that come to me and says, I have this product that's going to be amazing. Then it doesn't, right? The proof for me was I actually saw people loving it and asking for it. And I did studies. And so I knew that I had something special. And this normally happens with niche products that are really new to the market, that the market initially doesn't understand what they are and it rejects them. Mm -hmm. That's a great place to be in. And it's the more the reason why you shouldn't quit at something that you absolutely love. Mm-hmm. That's something very powerful that could make a difference, not only in your life, but in the lives of millions of people. And so I believe that and I had hope and I had seen it, but I just didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't know. I was just taking a step at a time every single day. And I think that's what we need to do when we have uncertainty. But I knew just didn't know how it was going to happen. Living by faith, sort of, you know? Yeah. 
people struggle all the time with believing in themselves, even trusting themselves. But was there just something different about you or you just knew the product was going to be good? Is there something about the way your mind works that just were like, no, I trust me. I know this is going to work or not. There's a lot to say to that because I'm going to be very honest with you and vulnerable too, because I felt like quitting it many times because it was so hard and nobody believed in me. Mm -hmm. But I had to pull everything within me to believe in myself that I knew that I had something and I was just going to give it a go. And if it felt, it felt and that's it. But I had hope, just the, the same hope that I had for coming out of the orphanage. And I think when you have that one element can continue to push you and move you. A couple other things that I did that were really, really tremendous and really helping me stay on course was my mental health, what I was eating, because what you eat gives you energy. I completely changed everything about what I was putting in my mouth, working out, moving my body, because when you don't do certain things like that, it's your life force. Right. Sometimes we just need to work on our life force and not worry so much about how to get there, but let the universe come back and say, I'll lead the way if you just work on your life force, because your life is what continues on. But if you deplete and if you kind of darken that light, then you don't have the energy to even think positively about the future. And what you need is a focus somewhere to look at that can continuously take you there. It's intention, the power of intention here and the power of focus in your mind. And if you don't work on your life force, more chances are you going to take you way longer to get there or you're not going to get there at all. You're going to let the outside circumstances control how you go. I really love that. Thank you. Was there something that sparked that change in you? Yes. I made a decision one day. Finally got a job at an interior design place and then they paid me minimum wage and I could barely make my bills. And I made a deal with myself and I said, okay, starting today, I'm going to write everything that I want for the future. I'm going to change the way that I look. Even if I don't have money, I'm going to go to TJ Maxx. I'm going to buy heels. I'm going to buy hoses. Hose? Pantyhose. Pantyhose. <laughs> I even scratched holes on those things. I didn't even know how to wear them. <laughs> and I wrote these affirmations that said, I'm going to become a vice president of an interior design firm. I'm going to do all these things. I remember the next day that I came into work and everybody looked at me like, what? Gotten into her because I looked totally different. I could barely walk on my heels. I've never had heels in my life. And they were just looking at me walking down the aisle. And I was, I was like courageous. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I did was also changing how I ate. Mm -hmm. And I was excited. And the owner was like, what's up? What's different with you? And I said, I'm so excited. I'm getting so healthy. I'm going to eat nothing but good. And I had Wendy's bags with me. What is that? And I pulled out and there were a bunch of salads that I had, you know, because I did that, my life force was so tremendously empowered. And then within a month, I got offered a vice president of interior design job. That's awesome. And paid me, I think it was $45,000 a year. And I was making like 10 or 12. That's when I began to recognize that this was really powerful. And I started working with the interior design piece as a vice president, but then I started developing the sauce company on the side. I would work there and then I would drive an hour away to an FDA approved kitchen, make products and come back around two or three in the morning and then go back to work. I did this for like a year. 
Would you mind sharing the story of you got the truck and you had to drive it somewhere? When we got the Whole Foods deal, I had to go back and really, really figure out how to make 10,000 pounds of salsa because it was the first order. And I didn't have equipment. I didn't have anything. I had one person that was helping me. And she and I got into the production area. We ordered the produce that we needed. And it took us a whole week to cut 10,000 pounds of product in. I had a week to deliver and I needed a truck to take this product in. And these are the big, big trucks with the refrigeration. And first of all, I went quickly and got my truck driver's license. Mm-hmm. And then I was looking for a truck and I couldn't find a truck anywhere. And it was the second to last day that I went to a junkyard and I found a truck. And I think I rented it for like 350 bucks. And I remember getting into this truck and testing everything. And it was, it got a clutch, everything with a stiff chicks, stick, <laughs> stick shift, stick shift. I say, I'm a stiff chick. <laughs> I always get that stick. standard. It didn't have the numbers. You couldn't see the numbers. Mm-hmm. And the seat wouldn't adjust because it was so rusty and it was squeaky. So when I wrote it, it was like squeaky, squeaky. <laughs> I went to the production area, the plant. And I backed up the truck and loaded it from front to top to back, completely loaded. And I was so excited. I got into this truck and I started driving. We have a lot of hills in West Virginia. And the first light that I stopped at, my truck was like this. On a hill, there's a stoplight. And I'm so short that I couldn't reach the pedals because my butt was to the back of the seat. (laughs) What I was trying to do was pull myself with a wheel. And try to do, like, grab myself with a standard and try to do the clutch in it. And I couldn't do it. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where something really tremendously impactful, crazy happens and you start sweating so quickly. That was me at that moment. I was sweating like that. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to roll back and hit the car behind me because I can't get it out of first. Mm-hmm are going to laugh at me because the truck was jerking like this. Okay, I'm not going to worry about that because I'm so short people can't even see me. And then uh, (laughs) I was driving this truck, finally pulled it out to the side of the road, barely passing the light. And I got out of the truck and I was like, I got to compose myself. I was blowing, you know, winging my face and I get out and I was smiling because I knew that I've made it that far. I just didn't know how I was going to make the next, I don't know how many miles, but it was like eight hours to get there. So I was walking around outside. I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I looked ahead and I saw a piece of woodblock on the road. And I remember that I had duct taped the right mirror because it was falling off. So I ran to that truck and I grabbed that duct tape and I duct taped this piece of wood on my foot. I didn't care if my shoes went bad or whatever. I just did this and got in the truck and I, voila, I could reach the pedals easier or the, the accelerator. So I take off and this truck has a leak in the gas tank. So I had to stop a lot. And you don't park this thing where the cars are. You park it where the tractor trailers are. And every time I had to get gas, I had to get out of this truck and walk with my little piece of woodblock. People were looking at me so weird. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, I just owned it because you could hear the, the, the piece of woodblock, too, when you were walking. Like people were like turning around. And so um, I remember arriving to Whole Foods and I was so excited and so happy. And I kept screaming, yes, I made it. It was the, one of the most exhilarating moments because I knew that if I'd done it that one time, everything else was just going to get easier. And it was just a matter of figuring everything else, including getting people to help me to make the products because now I understood how big of a task this was. Mm-hmm. We started making 
every week we got paid $40,000 for the product. I had to borrow 20 grand because the banks wouldn't loan me money from friends. I had to borrow $20,000. I realized what a contract meant. <laughs> and that's really how it just kind of multiplied and it just started growing tremendously. And have you sold Maggie Salsa now? Yes. Who'd you sell that to? My product sold with Garden Fresh to Campbell's Soup in 2015, and it sold for $231 million. After that, I went back to Mexico and I started working with orphanages and my orphanage and started a foundation to help other kids who are in very tough situations with human sex trafficking and all that now. Oh, that's wonderful. Is there a mission now? Do you have something that you wish people knew that that aren't following up on their dreams? I love what I do as a motivational speaker. And the thing that I want everybody to know is to remember to ask themselves every single morning, why am I here? Because it's going to allow you to think about your purpose. The most important thing, our tasks as human beings having a spiritual experience is to really understand and discover or rediscover why we are here. Because when we do that, we are being of greatest service, not only to ourselves, but to the world. And if you can remember, even if you really don't know what your purpose is, there's a way to discover that. And how do you do that? When you're on purpose, what happens? You feel free, you feel exhilarated, you feel fulfilled, you feel happy, you feel like everything's flowing and going your way and everything's manifesting. The moment that you start struggling is the universe or God telling you that you're in this GPS course, but you've gotten out of the course, right? And you need to realign yourself to feeling in abundance and flowing. Mm -hmm. The best thing that I can tell is to take inventory of your life. And it really takes you to sit down and close your eyes and ask yourself, doesn't matter if it's now between now into your childhood, as far as you can remember, if you did something that you absolutely love, that it gave you so much joy, think about what those moments were. And it doesn't have to be just one. And if you really loved doing what you did, what if you did it today, even if you didn't get paid? Mm -hmm. So fulfilled doing that. Try that. That's a great place to start because a lot of people are afraid of what ifs, of trying something. And then they end up getting older in life and regretting. Mm -hmm. So another question would be, what would I regret if I didn't do the things that could change everything for me? Right. I went through the beginning of my life as a tumbleweed, not knowing my purpose. And now I do. And I can see what you're saying is that this podcast in my magazine, they really light me up and I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, even though so far they're not making any money. I just know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm lit up. I can't wait to do it. So I think that's what you're saying. The thing about what you just said, and and I want you really like, this is powerful, is that you do have currency on it. What does that mean? It doesn't have to be paper money. Mm -hmm. Because you're already doing something tremendously that sometime in the future is going to pay off. And even if it's not financial, yes, it's going to pay off. It's paying off already. So I see what you're saying. Yes. I feel like I'm living in my purpose and that's paying off in itself. I'm waking up every day lit up. Absolutely. And the thing about the currency that you have right now in this is that 
you can't say to yourself that it's not going to make any money in the future because there's ways of figuring that out. Mm -hmm. But this is just a glorious beginning for you as being purpose and being so elated and happy and doing this. This is actually making me like so crazy happy for you because I love people that are in line and purpose and making a difference. I believe in what you're saying too, that I believe in the abundance and that it is going to make money. I don't have a problem that financial rewards will come, but even if it never does, I won't be disappointed. You're right on purpose. I appreciate everything you're saying. And that's really one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you so much. I loved what you said at NABO. So glad I went and heard you. Thank you. I love this. All the questions that you've asked me, I rather not know because it really comes from the heart. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Beneath Your Beautiful, hosted by Hara Allison. And thank you for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned.